please uh, stand. We're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 6, on page 807 in the Pew Bible, or if you prefer, inside the bulletin on page 8. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, you gave your son the name Jesus to let us know that he has come into the world to be our Savior. We pray, gracious Heavenly Father, that you would please open our ears and our hearts and give us grace that we may come to know about him more fully, to understand what he has done more completely, and follow him more obediently. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, and also Happy Holy Name Day. Today is the day when Jesus was given his name. We know that because it was eight days after he was born that Jesus would have been formally given the name that the angel had given to him, to Joseph. Uh, We read about in Matthew's Gospel. And so on this day, Jesus would have been given formally the name that he would carry his entire earthly life, Jesus, which means the Lord saves. So it's a lot to celebrate, and we're going to be thinking about all those things as we look at uh, this passage in front of us this morning. Uh, This is the first day in the 2023rd year, give or take, since Jesus was born. Uh, Have you ever wondered how that formula came to be and how we came to have the years that we currently have? Scholars have sought for centuries to identify the exact year Jesus was born. Uh, There have been all kinds of formula put together, all kinds of theories put together. Countless scholars, including no less than Sir Isaac Newton, when he wasn't figuring out the uh, reality of gravity, Uh, Newton worked diligently to set the dates for Jesus' birth, baptism, crucifixion, and resurrection. Turns out the most likely year of Jesus' birth is between 6 and 1 B.C. Scholars have been able to get more exact information than when the Gregorian calendar was introduced in 1582. And so we're actually uh, a little bit more than 2,023 years into the 
life, the Anno Domini of the Lord. Uh, I'd like for us to think a little bit about this passage today and what it tells us about this Lord whose birth we celebrate. Uh, If you look at the Bible passage, you'll see in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Uh, This is going to be a a sermon about kingship. It's going to be about the king and his kingdom. And here in this verse, we're introduced to this idea of kingship in this chapter. And it involves a number of kings. Uh, There's the King Herod. Uh, King Herod, that's a name familiar to us. Sometimes he's called Herod the Great. He was the Roman-appointed king of Palestine for 32 years, a little longer than Metrocrest has been a church. Herod was king of Palestine beginning in 37 B.C. He lived to be the age of 69. He was the second in a long line of family members to serve the Roman overlords who conquered Palestine. He was arguably the rottenest apple in a bushel of really rotten apples. And it's a tough competition. They were all really rotten, or many, many of them were really, really rotten. We know from uh, scholarship that Herod did lots of terrible things, including murdering his wife, murdering his mother-in-law, murdering his brother-in-law, murdering his wife's grandfather, and murdering two of his own sons. You could say Herod, rather than Herod the Great, was Herod the Murderer. And we're going to see next week how deep his evil went. Uh, when he does in the next section something almost unimaginable. Uh, Herod the king figures prominently in Matthew's sermon, uh, sorry, Matthew's telling of the birth of Jesus. Uh, Herod, this evil king, is actually setting the stage for, well, for the good king. If Herod's the evil king, the murderous king, uh, he is helping to set the stage for the good king, the true king, the promised king. He's the king mentioned by the wise men who came to worship Jesus. It says, uh, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, The wise men here are the ones who introduced this idea uh, in this section of Jesus as king. But actually, this is not the first reference to Jesus as a king. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Uh, Matthew's gospel to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book actually begins in what is a significant way. And I made mention of this a few Sundays ago, and I believe it was on Christmas Eve. There is great significance in the opening of Matthew's gospel. Uh, It actually begins, biblos, which means book, no article, book. And then the next word is geneseos, which means beginning. So in the uh, genitive, so it's book of beginning of Jesus Christ, son of David. That's how the book of uh, Matthew opens. It could be argued that the way the Bible gets its name is in part because of how Matthew opens his gospel. What was traditionally thought of as the the oldest gospel, uh, that's no longer universally accepted, but it's certainly always the first gospel in the New Testament as it's printed. From the very beginning of the canon, 
Matthew's gospel is going first. And it's how the, the New Testament actually opens. It opens with the word book. Book of beginning of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, when we read the word Christ, uh, little children might be forgiven for thinking Christ is Jesus' last name. But actually, as we all know, if you've attended excellent Sunday school programs, uh, you'll know that Christ is actually a title. It is the Greek trans, based on the Greek translation of an older Hebrew idea, Messiah, Mashiach. And Jesus is the Mashiach, the Christus, the Christ. And those words all refer to a king. As a matter of fact, saying Christ is really just another way of saying Christ or King Jesus. So Jesus, from the very beginning of the gospel, is shown to be a kind of king, and he's specifically a kind of king who is a son of David. That's another title among the Jews for king. Jesus, here at the beginning of the gospel, is shown to be a king, and specifically a king in the lineage of David. And that was significant because God had promised in the Old Testament that there would be a king in the lineage of David who would rule forever. So Matthew is setting the stage. He's, he's helping us to understand a little bit about who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to do from the very beginning of the gospel. There's a lot of scholarly work on the gospels going back centuries and centuries and centuries, actually millennia, trying to wrestle with the significance of the Gospels and how they relate to each other. Well, Matthew's Gospel, it is believed, was written in a way primarily for people who had a Jewish background, a familiarity with Judaism. So there are a lot of things that Matthew does specifically because he was writing to a group of people who knew their Bibles, who knew the Old Testament. Well, sadly, in 2023, there aren't so many of us around. Uh, if you're someone who knows your Bible, I had, I had uh, lunch the other day with someone who quoted the Bible out of the clear blue. I was so impressed. I thought, so few people today are actually capable of quoting the Bible like that. But in Matthew's day, he was actually speaking primarily, at first at least, to a lot of people who knew the Bible. And so we'll see as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, many references to the Old Testament, many references to themes and ideas that are in the Old Testament. He'll give clues with the words he chooses. It's very evident that Matthew is writing with a particular concern to communicate to people who knew Judaism that Christ, Jesus, came in fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. So that's the king that we're being introduced to in this passage. And then if you look at the rest of uh, Matthew chapter 1, you'll actually see in the first several verses multiple references to kings. And In fact, if you look in the genealogy, which is the way the word geneseos is often translated, the gene genealogy, if you'll look in that long genealogy that to many of us is pretty boring and doesn't seem to add a lot to the story, to first century Jewish readers, it would have explained the story to a great degree. The names that Matthew listed that are intended to show the 
connection of Christ not only to David, not only to Abraham, but to the long list of Jewish kings who reigned specifically in Judah. There in the genealogy, you'll see a long list of kings. There's David, there's Solomon, there's Rehoboam, who was the last king of the united Israel, the first king of Judah. There's Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, there's Jehoram, there's Uzziah, there's Jotham. Then you come to Ahaz. Ahaz is in the genealogy of Jesus. He was the 12th king of Judah, and he is called evil because he worshipped Assyrian gods. There's Hezekiah, who was righteous, but he's followed by Manasseh, the 14th king of Judah, who was also evil and was specifically under judgment. So there's, there are a number of references to evil kings. There's certainly Herod the Great, Herod the Murderer, Herod the evil, but there are also other kings showing that this promise of God that there would be a successor to David who was righteous, who would fulfill the promises of God in the Old Testament. There's this realization in Jesus' genealogy that that promise had not yet been fulfilled. There were moments of light, moments of hope, moments of promise, but right through all the way to the end of the Jewish uh, Monarchy in, in Jerusalem, when uh, Israel and then Judah fell to their Assyrian and Babylonian captors and conquerors, uh, that was the end of the seed of David, it seemed. It seemed as though that promise that God had made that there would be a son of David who would reign righteously forever, that that promise had manifestly not been fulfilled. So you can imagine to a Jewish reader, to someone who knew the Old Testament, how moving, how striking, how significant it was that this book begins by saying this is the book about the beginning of that promised son of David. And everything else we're going to read about in the rest of the book of Matthew is going to elaborate on this promise. The son of David and the son of Abraham, the father of faith. We see that person at last fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So all of this is Matthew setting the stage, taking from the rich tapestry of the Old Testament, pulling those themes, those ideas, and sometimes literally those words, word for word from the Old Testament, name by name, with great intentionality, bringing that in so that you and I understand the the king who's coming takes a little bit of study for us today because we don't all know this, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it to pay attention to these parts of the scriptures that we often gloss right over. We ignore virtually. So I'm glad this Christmas season we're taking the time to really pay closer attention, to pay attention to what Matthew wants us to know. And he wants us to know about this king. Now we see in verse 2, that it is actually the privilege of the wise men from the east to announce that Jesus is specifically the king of the Jews. To put it in so many words, verse 2. They ask a question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's striking, isn't it? It's interesting, ironic to think. Here are these visitors from the east who come, and they ask the evil king, where is the good king, the true king? The promised king. We'll see later how Herod responds to the question. But it's very interesting to picture these searchers from the east who've come with this driving question. 
And they come with the conviction that the king has come. That, that's always given me pause, made me scratch my head a little bit. How did the, these wise men from the east have this awareness? Herod had to get the experts from his own kingdom to gather and help him to understand what the visitors from the east seemed to know a lot about. They seemed to know more than the experts in Jerusalem. How did they know? Well, there's all kinds of theories, all kinds of reasons. The Lord could have simply revealed it to them. He could have used their knowledge of astronomy and the stars to to help them piece together some things like that. That's all possible. But you know another possibility that's worth pausing to think about? Centuries earlier, we know the story of Jonah. Jonah, the prophet, the reluctant prophet, who left Jerusalem in rebellion against God, God got his attention through a, a, a huge monster, a, sea, a fish in the sea, who got Jonah's attention, recommissioned Jonah, and Jonah went where? He went to Nineveh in the east. We're not actually told that Jonah came back. He went to Nineveh. He preached to the kingdom. The king in Nineveh repented, and many people repented in sackcloth and ashes. And the suggestion is that Jonah took this message from the God of Israel to the people of Nineveh, by the way, the evil people of Nineveh, and they repented. And could it be centuries later that the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren of those who heard Jonah's message could have, based on what they understood about the Old Testament, the, the prophecies which Jonah perhaps shared, taught them, that they had been able to piece these things together, led by the Holy Spirit, so that they could come and be here on this very occasion, based on words delivered by a very reluctant prophet a very long time before, that they were uh, there to see the king who had been promised in Jonah's scriptures. It could have been Daniel. Daniel went, and it's quite well known that Daniel had great significance, great influence in the kingdom where he served, another Babylonian king. And it could well be that perhaps Daniel and the Jews who lived there around him, that they shared the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures that, that they had at that time, the, the prophecies, the Torah, that they had shared these words, and centuries later, their Descendants were able to come and seek the king of the Jews. Again, we're not really told, but it's interesting to think about how the Lord brought it to this point that it's actually Gentiles, non-Jews, who come and are the very first ones to say these words, Jesus, the king of the Gentiles, the king of the Jews. It is, it is actually on the lips of a Gentile, in, a, in the form of a question, that we actually hear reference to this baby as the king of the Jews. And those very same words, not coincidentally, will show up again at the end of Matthew's gospel. And it'll be on the lips of another king who has those words put on the cross of Jesus, the king of the Jews. So the non-believing wise men 
use the words that will later be used by a pagan king, an evil king, as he kills Christ. Matthew wants us to know in his gospel that the king has come. And brothers and sisters, the reason we celebrate Christmas is because the birth of the king is extremely important. It's extremely important. It's the most important thing that we could possibly understand about this baby is that this baby is not just unique. He's not just unusual. He doesn't have just a sentimental story and some says and does some meaningful things. No, this baby, as the wise men say, this baby is the king who has come into the world. And that king who died on the cross was raised again and still reigns. Matthew's gospel closes by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus' kingship continues. He's still the king. He still reigns. He is still the one who is appointed over all things. He is still the one who will be our judge. He's still the one who will bring to conclusion all things as this new creation begins. So Matthew has a lot to teach us in a few words. In a couple of chapters, he's already pointing us towards things that we will discover as we continue to look at the gospel of Matthew over the next several months. Now, Matthew doesn't stop with simply telling us that the king has come. He's actually going to, in these very first verses of chapter 2, he's going to teach us some things about the king's kingdom. You know, the, the, the fact there's a king is one thing. To know something about how that king will reign, how that king does reign, the character of that king, that's really important. Yes, there, there were evil kings in Judah. There were evil kings. There were a few righteous kings in Judah. The important thing isn't that there's a king. The important thing is what is that king like? What can we learn about this king? And there are a number of hints right here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that will help us to understand the rest of the book. And if we were like the first century Jews reading Matthew's gospel, those who had a knowledge of the Old Testament like they did, we would see like marquee letters Huge words, huge indications of what this king would be like, what he would do. You know, one of the first key uh, clues to this king who has come into the world, well, it has to do with the kings and their, the wise men and their coming to worship the Lord. Now, uh, an alert member of the congregation pointed out to me last week that I said something about the kings. And if you know, like I do, about the three kings of Orient who are smoking a rubber cigar, then you will know that lots of Christians for a long time have talked about these wise men as three kings. Well, it doesn't say, doesn't say they were three, doesn't say they were kings. It says there were wise men, plural. So there's more than one. Maybe three, maybe as many as 15 or 20. Who knows? Could have been a whole band of wise men. So where do they get the idea that there were three kings who came to worship the Lord Jesus? Well, if, uh, if we knew our Old Testaments, uh, we would know that in the book of Isaiah, we're actually told that at 
some point when the promised Messiah comes, that the kings would stream to his, the likeness of his being. They will come to him. And they mention that there will be frankincense uh, and myrrh, that the precious gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh would be brought from the kings, from the nations, and presented to the baby, to the promised Messiah. Well, attentive Old Testament scholars thought, well, perhaps this is literally what's happening here. Three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three kings, because there were kings who were streaming to the Messiah. So they didn't come up with something crazy. It actually kind of makes sense. But let's be clear, Matthew doesn't record that detail. You'd think if that was an important detail, he would have recorded it. You wouldn't have to piece it together the way I just did. But that's why we sing, oh, the famous hymns we sing about we three kings. It's not made up out of nothing. It's pious tradition going back many, many centuries, all the way back to antiquity, where they thought that these three, these wise men actually came and they represented the nations, the kings coming to worship the Messiah. That, that's worth thinking about. That's where they got it. That's why they sang about it. That's why they wrote hymns about it. That's why some people think of that today. But you know, Matthew didn't record that detail. You know what Matthew recorded? Matthew records that they were wise men. That's the important point. Maybe they were kings. Who knows? Maybe they were three. Who knows? But what was important is that they were wise men. Now, it doesn't say wise guys. Wise men was a word that actually meant something. It's actually a translation for one word, magi, magi. They came, these wise men, magi. And magi were specifically a, a, a class of priests, scholars, uh, who were truly wise, sometimes through the study of astronomy. They knew the stars, so it kind of makes sense that they came observing a star. Uh, there was a whole class of these holy priests. They were sometimes what you might call today scientists. Uh, wouldn't be any, wouldn't be completely out of line to think they were the they were the Isaac Newtons of their day. They were the really bright people of their day, and they were the ones who spotted all these things. Perhaps on the basis of things they'd been taught in the past, but they came in obedience, looking for this baby. They came with holy curiosity, a holy eagerness to come, and it says to worship him. Now, we shouldn't read too much into that. To worship literally means just to fall down before. So you could worship a king and not be saying necessarily that you thought that king was God. But it is interesting that the very first people who worshipped Christ were non-Jews from the east, magi. They were the first to actually worship Christ, perhaps not fully understanding what they were doing. But they were the very first recorded in Matthew's gospel to actually worship Christ. Now the gifts. We're going to learn more about the gifts. We read about the gifts in the coming verses. We'll read more about what Matthew has to say about the gifts. But I want to mention the gifts because they help us to understand the king and his kingdom. They bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. Again, those are hinted at in the Old Testament. Those aren't random coincidences. 
They're actually given to us in the Old Testament. You know, one of the things I think about Matthew, who did know his Old Testament, it feels as though Matthew set a fire with the Holy Spirit, which we'll pray for, for the, the, the renewal, which I also pray for in my own life and our church's life. They had this, Matthew had this inflamed desire to know Christ. And it's almost like every word of the Old Testament suddenly leapt off the page at Matthew. And what he's writing here is what he's describing is how he's pieced together based on things he knew happened. He's not making it up to make a point. I believe Matthew's recording things that actually happened, but his enthusiasm, his zeal comes from the fact where you can almost feel it. He's going, wow, this was true of Jesus. This was true of Christ. This was true of Christ. This promise is fulfilled in him. This covenant promise is fulfilled in him. This miracle is worked in fulfillment to God's word. So that's the attitude you get from Matthew. And so we read about this this gold and frankincense and myrrh. Who knows what those things are? If you've paid careful attention in an adult Bible class, maybe you'll know that that gold represented wealth. It, It was the kind of thing kings did give kings. People of great wealth would give the gift of gold. And so they brought a gift of gold to lay at the feet of the Christ. Uh, But they also brought frankincense. Frankincense was used in incense, as the name implies. Frankincense was burned. It was was something that was used in all kinds of uh, worship services and in all kinds of things like that. And so there's this little hint that, wait a minute, maybe the worship we're giving this king is a little different. These wise men from the east brought frankincense to lay at the feet of the child Jesus, the child king. They brought frankincense along with the gold. The gold made perfect sense. But they also brought with them frankincense something often used in worship, the incense that they offered to their God. And they bring that and lay frankincense at the feet of the infant Christ. But the third gift is perhaps the the most curious of all. They brought with them gold and frankincense and something called myrrh, which most of us know very little about, unless you happen to know the history of funerals. (laughs) Myrrh was something that was used to preserve bodies. It was very valuable, very, very valuable. It was used in Egypt and other places as a way of embalming the dead, a way of preserving dead bodies. Now, um, the Withers just recently had a newborn baby in their family. Uh, They're the new grandparents to a beautiful little boy, Emmett, who's doing well. I'll be very surprised if at his next ceremony where people bring presents for a little Emmett, I'll be very surprised if anybody brings him some myrrh or embalming fluid. But the wise men brought this precious herb, this very valuable, expensive thing that was used in funerals. They brought that to present to the newborn king of the Jews. So what do we learn about the king and his kingdom? Well, we we learn several things. We learn that this king 
will be truly the king. He, he will be the one who sovereignly reigns, and he still does. He will also be the king whom we now can worship, whom we now realize this king, this son of David, this son of Abraham, is actually God in flesh. The angels already told us this. The angel told Joseph in the preceding chapter that the baby would be the son of God. And Luke records that. John records it in great detail. This baby, this king who reigns, is not just another king. He's not just like King Charles in England. They have a new King Charles III. Uh, Jesus was not just a new king in a long line of kings. This was a king who represents the king. The king of the universe, the creator, the sovereign God who spoke the Old Testament. Who revealed his promises and has completed, fulfilled his promises in the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the king whom we celebrate this Lord's Day. He came and we worship him. We join the Gentile wise men as they worship the Lord. And then finally, most remarkably, this king, who is God, came to die. How unlikely is that? You'd have to really know your Old Testament to realize that all along, God had been pointing towards the reality that this suffering servant, this this king, unlike every other king, This king came into the world to suffer and to die for the likes of us. That's how Jesus lived into his name. That's how Jesus lived out what his name was pointing towards. The way Jesus saves us is by dying for us on the cross. And that same Jesus who died on the cross was raised to new and never-ending life, initiating this new reality, revealing in, in a new way what began on the day he was born, the day he was conceived, the, the unbelievable fulfillment of God's promise that there will be a new creation. And brothers and sisters, 2,023 years later, more or less, you and I are still living through that unfolding promise. And one day, the one who died, the one who has been raised, will return again. And that's why we celebrate Christmas for two Sundays. Because there's hardly anything to contemplate that is more amazing than that. And Matthew tells about it in the first lines, the first two chapters of his gospel. He's helping us to know about this king and his kingdom. He has much more to say about the quality, the nature of this king and his kingdom. He has much more to say about how we live in it. We'll see that as we go through Matthew. But he begins by telling us about the king and his kingdom on the basis of what the king is like and what the king has come to do. That's why we celebrate Christmas.